Good evening. It's Pandora's Lunchbox on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Mike. Pandora's Lunchbox is a show about food and about songs, about holidays, and about culture, and about something along the lines of this. Seriously, wouldn't you burst out into applause at that? I know you would, and I and I am too. Hold on, let me see what I mean. That's Joseph Spence, and probably the only Christmas record that's ever been necessary. That's Joseph Spence's version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. It's really a show about food and slight chaos here and all that sort of thing, but here's some, speaking of chaos and, well, okay, a song, a version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town like that, 
really clear some of the nonsense out of my head. There's a lot of nonsense in the news right now, and I just want to mention that one of the most nonsensical people right now appears to be one fellow by the name of Madoff, a fellow whose name is living in infamy and whose first name I just can't find right now, but here we go. A New York investment advisor is a fellow who has been involved in a huge Ponzi scheme, Mr. Madoff, who made off with a lot of money and now is making himself a lot of trouble. Here's the story. I mean, I didn't think this would be of Michigan or food relevance, but guess what? A Michigan foundation committed to getting healthy food into poor urban areas is going out of business. A victim of the multi-billion dollar fraud case filed against New York investment advisor. Mr. Madoff. The Fair Food Foundation, based in Ann Arbor, says it will close its operation over the next few weeks. The foundation's mission was to make grants to improve the availability of fresh food in areas like Detroit and Oakland, California. On its website, the foundation says it relied on donors whose money was managed by Bernard Madoff, who was accused of fraud. The donors were not named. The loss of the Fair Food Foundation and the potential financial support it would have provided is a stinging blow to the community of activists, advocates, organizers, and funders dedicated to redesigning our broken food system, says the president of the Fair Food Foundation. I'm heartened by the strong support that has rallied around the vision of a food system that creates health for our children, our communities, and our environment. This is from the Associated Press reading from Associated Press article. A New York law firm says it created the foundation in 2007 on behalf of a very charitable-minded client to help people who live in food deserts where healthy food is hard to find or too expensive. Jennifer Fike, the director of the Food System Economic Partnership, said the demise of fair food is devastating. Her Ypsilanti-based group works to get food produced in southeast Michigan into local schools, among other projects. They were going to be putting some real dollars in to change the food system in the city of Detroit, Fike said. The Kellogg Foundation said it would try to address issues identified by fair food. The foundation president said when our board visited the city of Detroit a few months ago, we saw the potential that urban agriculture might hold as both a way to create good jobs while providing fresh, healthy local food to children and families. That's according to the president of the Kellogg Foundation. Once again, the shenanigans of one multi-billion dollar fraud meister by the name of Bernard Madoff. You know, I get no joy of making a pun out of his name. He made off with all that money. See, that's not satisfying at all, is it? No, because of him, a Michigan foundation committed to getting healthy food to the poor has gone out of business, poor urban areas to be specific. That's the Fair Food Foundation, and it is not fair. So this is a good time to think about people who need food, to think about food gatherers and other organizations around Washtenaw County Project Grow, Growing Hope, that work to educate young people on growing their own food and bring food to people who need it. So this is a time to think about people who need things like that and a really nasty time for some goofball by the name of Bernard Madoff to get his hands messy and mess things up. But... All I can do right now is say, think of those who need the food, try to get food to them, and if you need to dance, duck for the oyster. Kind of like this. Hit it, maestro!
can. Dig, dig, dig. Knock a hole in the old tin can. Suck up two, knock up four. Away you go, round that floor. Duck for the oyster, duck, duck, duck. Dig for the clam, dig, dig, dig. Knock a hole in the old tin can. For the clam, do, do, do. Knock that hole in your tin can. Mm, yeah, I'm a man left that you go around with a big foot up and a little foot down like an engine walking on a broken ground. Yeah, shift your meal, mix your dough, save your hill, tap your toe, take your honey and walk us home. Promenade, you know where, and I don't care. Take that baby in your arms to a nice soft Isn't it nice to have a nice square dance that ends with a nice blood-curdling scream? Isn't that refreshing? Yeah, that was Duck for the Oyster by Malcolm McLaren. That's a traditional um, square dance hip-hop tune from the early... 1890-hundreds. That's from Malcolm McLaren's album, Duck Rock. Duck for the oyster, duck, 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 dig for the clam, dig, 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 and all of that. You know, the thing is that the idea of duck for the oyster has intrigued me for at least a few minutes now, and I looked up information on duck for the oyster. What is duck for the oyster? It is, in fact, a visiting dance. It's one of those square dance things. It's a visiting dance. Now, here are some directions from sca.uwaterloo.ca, which I know you and I have all been involved with, listening to, reading, etc. Okay, here we go. Now, description is the number one couple walks to their right, circles with couple two, and dips under the arch of couple two and backs out. No one must let go of each other's hands until the last line of the call. I think no one lets go of each other's hands is, is important to know these days. Couple two now dips under the arch of couple one and backs out. Couple one ducks under the arch of couple two and stands straight up. Couple one raise their own joined hands and both first gent and first lady backs under the arch that they made back to back and rotate so that they are facing each other. They continue to hold their arch high and pull couple two through that arch and once through, only then do couple two unravel and all are facing in. The last line has couple two making an arch and couple one dies under the arch, lets go of couples two's hands and moves on to couple three to repeat the pattern. Okay, here we go. Duck for the oyster. Duck, duck, duck. Dig for the clam. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You should also know that duck for the oyster was not a phrase actually invented by the British fellow Malcolm McLaren, who also was the manager for the Sex Pistols, much to Johnny Rotten's chagrin. Nonetheless, Malcolm McLaren did do a song called Duck for the Oyster, and there was another tune that also referenced the phrase Duck for the Oyster, the dance Duck for the Oyster, in fact, by Irving Berlin, called the Washington Square Dance. And in these heady political times, now seems to be the time to read it off of a Xerox piece of paper from the Internet. This is actually a production from Irving Berlin called Call Me Madam, which was produced in 1950, I believe, with Ethel Merman, if I remember correctly. And this tune here, Duck for the Oyster, the tune is actually called The Washington Square Dance. Let me read some of the lyrics here. Okay. Bow to your partners, bow to your corners, dance till your cheeks are red as a rose. But try not to step on your partner's toes. Now duck for the oyster, dig for the clam, duck for the oyster, dig for the plant, dig for the clam, but do your digging for Uncle Sam. That is a message to remember for at least a few seconds. That's from Call Me Madam. Ethel Merman was in it when it was uh, in New York when it first came out. And there you go. Call Me Madam. But, you know, only, only in polite company. This is Pandora's Lunchbox. This is Mike. And you're listening to a show about food. And how much is a pint? How much? 
How much is a pint? That is probably the key question here. We may only find out in a few minutes here. Billy Bragg and the Milkman of Human Kindness, and he'll leave you an extra pint, but how much is a pint? That is the question. This is news now from the BBC. Cheers to saving the British pint. The British pint has, has, has been saved, and maybe I need to drink if you just uh, really appreciate it. An agreement has been reached with the European Union to allow Britain to keep measuring its roads in miles and serving beer in pints. The decision put drinkers in one London pub in a celebratory mood, as BBC News found out. But let's go to that pub in a moment. Here's the basic information. Decades of wrangling with the European Union over switching to metric measures has ended, with a vote confirming that imperial measures can carry on indefinitely. The European Commission acknowledged last year that persuading the UK to embrace liters and kilometers over pints and miles was a lost cause. The Minister for Europe, Carolyn Flint, said it was a victory for common sense. So I thought when I went to England a few years ago that maybe everything would be metric. All the, all the measurements for distances would be in kilometers or kilometers, as they say, and all of the measurements would be in liters and stuff, and that we Americans were the stubborn people only holding on to the pints and the quarts and all that stuff because we're Americans. But actually, my friend in Britain told me it was about half and half, half metric, half imperial, or half traditional, whatever. So here we go. The British are allowed to continue with this sort of thing. The vote means a 2009 deadline to end the use of imperial measurements alongside metric units has been scrapped. This, this is a word from the, the Innovation, Universities, and Skills Secretary. And you know that's a job to aspire to. John Denham, he said after the European parliamentary vote, people in Britain like their pint and their mile. They should be able to use the measures they're most familiar with, and now they can be sure that they will continue to do so. Since 1995, goods sold in Europe had to have display metric weights and measurements, but to appease an, a public outcry in the UK, imperial indications had also been allowed. The issue caused most controversy when Britain's so-called metric martyrs lost a battle to trade only in pounds and ounces. One of them, Steve Thoburn, who died suddenly in 2004, had been convicted in 2001 of selling bananas only by the pound. That's the pound weight now, not the pound money. His offense was to fail to provide customers with the metric equivalent as required by European Union law. So now he truly is a metric martyr. This is true. And as says a fellow in a bar here in 
in New Zealand. Britain wouldn't be Britain without pints. And the story of pints is quite a long and arduous story, one that I think we should spend as much time in possible, uh, in possible and on. But first, we should probably... Uh, oh, dear. The, the band is playing. Let me just uh, let me just let them play the tune here, and we'll, we'll be back to that in just a second. Two pints of lager and a packet of crisps, please. I'll have two pints of lager and a packet of crisps, please. Two pints of lager and a packet of crisps, please. I'll have some pickled onions and a little bit of cheese, please. Thank you. Two pints of lager and a packet of crisps, please. beautiful sounds of the ukulele orchestra of Great Britain. I'm sorry if the sound is like poop, but it's an mp3 and you know how those things are, those crusty old this is a crusty old mp3 with a bunch of beer on it, it's got a bunch of crisps on it and it's just uh... Paffa Shandy which of course is lemonade and beer mm. that was two pints of lager and a packet of crisps please you could call that um well i was going to try to do the math here because one see one dry pint one wet pint it's all it's all very important now here's here's something you should know america adopted the british wine gallon defined in 1707 as 231 cubic inches and i'm sure you were throwing the cubits in there and measuring the inches as its basic liquid measure from which the u.s wet pint is derived 
Got that now. The British corn gallon, mm, one-eighth of a standard Winchester bushel of corn, as you all know, as 268.8 cubic inches as its dry measure from which the U.S. dry pint is derived. In 1824, the British Parliament replaced all of its variant gallons with a new imperial gallon based on 10 pounds of distilled water at 62 degrees Fahrenheit at 277.42 cubic inches from which the U.K. pint is derived. As part of the metrication process, the pint in the UK and in Kenya is now used only as a measure for beer and cider when sold by the glass. In public houses, for instance, and for milk, as we heard from Billy Bragg earlier, although milk is also sold in metric quantities, many recipes published in the UK still provide ingredient quantities in Imperial, where the pint is often used as a unit for larger liquid larger liquid quantities. Most new recipes are now published in metric only, with the pint being rounded to 500 or 600 milliliters. So it's kind of like a pinch, a pinch of salt, although this is a really, really big pinch. Maybe it's a millipinch or a megapinch or a kilopinch. I'd like a kilopinch of lager and a packet of crisps, please. Crisps, which, of course, are potato chips. Now, here's another thing that you should know about the pint. A lot of people got very, very passionate about this. I went to a bar called the Kildare House in Windsor, and I don't think Canada has to use the pint or whatever else they want to use. They can do whatever they want, I'm pretty sure. I don't know what the Canadian regulations are. But in this Kildare House in Windsor, there was a poem of sorts called Demand the Imperial Pint. I'm going to read a bit of it for you because I'm not into the singing right now. But this is set to the tune of The Scotsman's Kilt. You must know the Scotsman's, Scotsman's Kilt. Comrades, come rally and listen to this tale about the stinking blighters who cheat us of our ale. Stand here together and vow to make a fight, to quench our thirst after all our work with a good imperial pint. We work and slave so hard for our masters every day, far too many hours for far too little pay. Yeah. At the end of the day, when we finally take our rest, a good pint of ale is the thing that we love best. The imperial pint is a sight to make a worker grin. It is a thing of beauty when filled up to the brim. Now some would try and rob us, so comrades heed my call. They're stealing our wages with a pint that's much too small. A warning to the grafters, you'd better lend an ear. Everybody knows that we workers love our beer. Serve liquid fermentation in a pint that's true. You ferment revolution when you're cutting back our brew. That's right. Fermenting revolution. Yeah, don't mess with us. We want our pint and a packet of crisps, and we want it now. Although if you have something else, we'd take that too. This is Pandora's Lunchbox, and coming up at 7, it's time to face the music. But in the meantime, a word from Ogden Nash. The boy who laughed at Santa Claus. In Baltimore there lived a boy. He wasn't anybody's joy. Although his name was Jabez Dawes, his character was full of flaws. In school, he never led his classes. He hid old ladies' reading glasses. His mouth was open when he chewed, and elbows to the table glued. He stole the milk of hungry kittens. He walked through doors marked no admittance. He said he acted thus because there wasn't any Santa Claus. Another trick that tickled Jabez was crying boo at little babies. He brushed his teeth, they said in town, sideways instead of up and down. Yet people pardoned every sin and viewed his antics with a grin till they were told by Jabez Dawes there isn't any Santa Claus. Deploring how he did behave, his parents swiftly sought their grave. And Jabez left the funeral early. Like whooping cough, from child to child, he sped to spread the rumor wild. 
Sure as my name is Jabez Dawes, there isn't any Santa Claus. Slunk like a weasel or a martin through nursery and kindergarten. Whispering low to every tot, there isn't any. No, there's not. The children wept all Christmas Eve, and Jabez chortled up his sleeve. No infant dared hang up his stocking for fear of Jabez ribald mocking. He sprawled on his untidy bed, fresh malice dancing in his head, when presently, with scalp a-tingling, Jabez heard a distant jingling. He heard the crunch of sleigh and hoof, crisply alighting on the roof. What good to rise and bar the door? A shower of soot was on the floor. What was beheld by Jabez's doors? The fireplace full of Santa Claus. Then Jabez fell upon his knees with cries of don't and pretty please. He howled, I don't know where you read it, but anyhow, I never said it. Jabez replied the angry saint, it isn't I, it's you that ain't. Although there is a Santa Claus, there isn't any Jabez's doors. Said Jabez then with impudent vim, oh yes there is, and I am him. Your magic don't scare me, it doesn't. And suddenly he found he wasn't. From grimy feet to grimy locks, Jabez became a jack-in-the-box. An ugly toy with springs unsprung, forever sticking out his tongue. The neighbors heard his mournful squeal. They searched for him, but not with zeal. No trace was found of Jabez's doors, which led to thunderous applause. And people drank a loving cup and went and hung their stockings up. All you who sneer at Santa Claus, beware the fate of Jabez's doors. The saucy boy who mocked the saint, Donder and Blitzen, licked off his paint. <laughs> oh, that poor kid. Well, this has been Pandora's Lunchbox, and I hope that's a lesson to you who don't believe in Santa Claus. Just be happy, happy. But here's here's another story for you just as we get out of here. And Ed Special is going to help us to face the music and perhaps some other things, too. Uh, okay, so here's the story from the Associated Press from Sandusky, Ohio. Police say a figure of the baby Jesus that disappeared from a downtown park in northern Ohio has been found hanging from an apartment's ceiling fan. <laughs> Sandusky police say they went to Joshua Martin's apartment acting on a tip. The 22-year-old has been charged with receiving stolen property, and 23-year-old James Arwood is charged with theft. Theft. The counts are misdemeanors carrying a maximum penalty of up to six months in jail and $500 fines if convicted. The 18-inch infant, Jesus, was reported missing last week from a nativity scene in Sandusky's Washington Park downtown. The figure is about 50 years old. Wow, it's a 50-year-old infant. Whew, I don't know why. Wow. Police say, this is the best part, police say Martin and R would blame each other for the statue's theft, and they blame one another for the idea to hang it from the fan. I didn't do it. He did. No, I didn't do it. He died. I don't know how to, I, I took it. I didn't mean to I took it, but I think he put the heat one I wanted to hang. Well, I didn't. Well, I saw it hanging there, but I just hoped. I, he hoped he, but he stole it. Yeah, okay. Thank you for listening. This has been Pandora's Lunchbox. I've been Mike for at least as long as such a thing is really actually possible. And coming up in a moment, it is time to face the music with Mr. Ed, Mr. Special. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Let's take us out with a little bit of uh, special Christmas cheer, as if the Ogden Nash wasn't cheery enough. Here are Here am Deja Voodoo, and this is Bugs for Christmas. Thank you. Ba 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 
from the Hilton Hotel. On top of the Hilton Hotel. For your entertainment pleasure. WCBN FM Ann Arbor. If you're any further left, you'd be watching TV. 